Welcome to the show, Andrew. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time, man. I'm extremely curious. What uh, led you into the path that you became uh, well-known as the vitamin man? Well, I think what really moved me into this was having children. Uh, I had my first child when I was 22 years old. At the time, that did not seem all that young, but now I think it does. <laughs> oh, and, <yes. laughs> and the one thing I noticed was that the doctors just didn't really seem to be doing a very thorough job offering ways to keep this newborn baby healthy. They wanted to give the child shots, which we rejected. Uh, everybody was saying at the time, use formula. Well, no, breastfeeding is better. We found that out on our own, not through the medical system. And as far as diet goes, most people would go to the store and buy whatever baby food is in a jar or a package. Uh, we basically decided that we needed to have healthy children, which meant they needed healthy food. So we started doing a lot of our own foods, our own prepared foods, a garden. I worked on a farm. The children were raised with raw milk, goat's milk or cow's milk. Everyone said, you must pasteurize that. I thought, I'm milking this myself. I know it's clean. And in addition to this, we did not give the children meat. They were raised not vegan, not strict vegetarian, but they were raised ovo-lacto-vegetarian. So they had dairy products such as milk, yogurt, cheese, and also had eggs. Well, all of this uh, was working pretty well. They also got vitamin supplements as insurance. But when they got sick, and all kids get sick, everyone does, the question is, how long are you going to be sick? So being a normal parent, I didn't want my kids sick. So when they got sick, I realized that there was something I needed to know. There's something I needed to do. And you have to do their thinking for them. So it was up to me. And the sense of responsibility pushed me into reading. And I revisited Linus Pauling. Now, when I had been a university student, I thought Dr. Pauling was silly. I distinctly remember sitting down with a mate of mine who was a physics student. I was a chemistry and biology student. And we were in the uh, dining hall one day, and we scribbled on a piece of paper the, the number of oranges we calculated you'd have to eat to get the amount of vitamin C that Linus Pauling said you needed. Well, it was hundreds of oranges a day. <laughs> And we thought that was rather funny, and it is, until they put a newborn baby in your arms and say, here, Dad, and now it's up to you. So when my children got sick, I gave them more vitamin C, and it seemed to help them get better. Now, this is important, especially at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Once my daughter 
at the age of four, had a really bad cough. It, it was really pretty terrible. And she was coughing pretty much through the night. And the cough did not break. She was coughing uh, through the day as well. And we were getting ready to take her to the doctor because it seemed like that might be necessary. We had doctors. We just didn't go. We didn't need to. We would go if we needed to. And we thought, all right, well, this might be one of those times. But then I thought to myself, you know, I haven't actually tried high dose, really, really high dose vitamin C yet. The way Dr. Robert Fulton Cathcart, a medical doctor in California, USA, had used it. Now, Dr. Cathcart used so much vitamin C in divided oral doses that he would instruct his patients to take enough vitamin C to feel better, but not so much as causes bowel tolerance. Now, that means exactly what you think it means. So I would have this question in front of me for a minute or two, and I was thinking, well, is this safe? I'd seen Dr. Cathcart on television, and I'd read about him, and I'd read his work, but I hadn't really tried it yet. I figured, well, this is a good time. He seemed to be a reliable source of information, being a medical doctor and a board-certified specialist in orthopedics, had a lot of experience with patients with vitamin C, decades of experience. So I thought, okay, this is a good idea. The doctor says so. And I started giving my daughter, who was four years old, about 4,000 milligrams of vitamin C every half hour. Now, that's a very large amount of uh, of vitamin C. Yeah, that's really a lot. But she was very sick. You need to understand this cough was not stopping. She would just cough and cough and cough. It wasn't whooping cough, but it must have been almost as persistent. And we did not want to go through another night of a coughing child because that isn't good for anybody, including her brother or the rest of the family or her. So we had a very strong motivation to give her vitamin C. Now, my wife had had enough. She needed a break, so she went out to go bowling. And I was left with my daughter and the question of how much C to give her. So I just figured, well, Dr. Cathcart would say, give her enough to get her well, but not so much as causes really loose stool. Bowel tolerance is that loose stool marker. So I gave her all this vitamin C, about 4,000 milligrams every half hour, and In about three hours, two things happened. Her cough totally stopped, and she was on the toilet. (laughs) And it is really a, a rather funny thought, but that's exactly how it happened. And I thought, Dr. Cathcart was right. He was right. And he described it in his papers, and this is exactly what I saw with my own eyes. Well, when you see that happen, you never look back. I raised my children all the way into college, all the way into university, and they never had one dose of any antiviral. They never had one dose of any antihistamine. They never had one dose of any antibiotic, not once, not ever. So this high-dose vitamin C therapy 
as doctors have described it, is very effective. How high dosage do you need to, for example, if you got the, the common cold or the flu? Well, it'll depend. The interesting thing about Dr. Cathcart is that he stopped calling diseases by name. He just treated them and named them based on how much vitamin C it took to cure them. So he would say, you have uh, a 30-gram cold. (laughs) Or you have a 100-gram cold. Or in the case of um, infectious hepatitis or viral pneumonia, you have a 150-gram, that is 150,000 milligrams, cold. So Cathcart actually looked at it not as what is this called, but how do we cure it? And that really is the most practical way to approach it. Vitamin C is a spectacular antiviral, and everyone, and I mean everyone, asks me, how much do I need to take for this condition? And the answer is, we really don't know. You have to try it and see, because the amount that gets you well is the amount you need to take. And that's not as trite a statement as it sounds. We have ideas. Influenza will require more vitamin C than a common cold. And acute hepatitis will take much more than influenza. But the exact amount that an individual needs depends on their age, their stress level, their nutrition, their body weight, their general level of health, and how sick they are. So you, when you're healthy, might do very well on a small dose of vitamin C every day. But when you're sick, you might need an astronomical amount of it. And a good way to do this, to uh, make the analogy, is in a building, you can have fire extinguishers on each floor. And if you have a small fire, you can put it out with a small extinguisher. But if the whole building goes up, you better call all the fire departments in and put all the water on it. And it's going to take a lot of water to put out a fire in an entire building. It is foolish to try to fight a huge building fire with little tiny fire extinguishers. And that's exactly what the government would have us do. It would have us say that a little bit of citrus juice or a little tiny bit of vitamin C that you might find in green peppers or cabbage Uh, Maybe, possibly, perhaps, if you really want to waste your money in a multivitamin, that that's all the vitamin C you need. Now, I'm being sarcastic when I say wasting your money in a multivitamin, you understand. But the general impression people are given by medical authority is that you need vitamin C. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, definitely. It helps prevent scurvy. It's important for healthy tissues. Um, You need vitamin C. The argument is over the amount. And this is because there is a belief system in place that you only need a tiny amount of vitamin C, the amount that will keep you from dropping dead of scurvy, and perhaps a little bit more than that. So in the United States, people are told the recommended dietary allowance for vitamin C every day is less than 100 milligrams of C. They're not only told that, they're told that that's really an ample amount, that there's a margin for error in there and you really could do with less. 
Well, it's a good thing because most Americans get less. And they're not scurbutic. There's not a lot of scurvy in the United States, but there's an awful lot of viral illness. There's an awful expensive medical bill. Uh, in our country, we're, we're spending close to $4 trillion a year on disease care. This is a really large amount of money, and it isn't just the U.S. It's everywhere. Everyone everywhere has these problems, and vitamin C is, is a universal way to approach it. So what we have to keep in mind is the amount you need will vary. The sicker you are, the more vitamin C you hold. A dry sponge can absorb more milk. So the amount of vitamin C you need depends. For normal consumption, I think we need to take in what primates, that is gorillas and uh, monkeys and chimpanzees take in. A monkey weighing about 25 pounds, will consume around 650 milligrams of vitamin C a day. This has been studied. They've observed monkeys, what they eat, and they analyze what they are eating, and they get this figure. Now, monkeys eat a lot of fruit, but they're very similar to us. And if they are consuming 650 milligrams and they weigh 25 pounds, if someone weighs 10 times that, uh, 250 pounds, which is a big person, but I know a lot of people who are that big, they would need 6,500 milligrams of C a day. And if a person weighed 125 pounds, which is a fairly small adult, uh, they would still need uh, over 3,000 milligrams of C a day. Now, if you don't want to do this argument, you can criticize the U.S. RDA as being too low with another argument. Rather than look at the amount of vitamin C that primates eat, we can look at the amount of vitamin C that other animals manufacture in their own bodies. Most animals make their own C. Primates, humans, chimps, monkeys do not. Guinea pigs cannot make their own vitamin C, but rats can. Uh, fruit bats, cannot make their own vitamin C, but birds can. Butterflies make their own vitamin C. Fleas, blue whales, frogs, worms, dogs, cats, mice, rats, uh, sheep, goats, you name it, almost every animal makes their own vitamin C. So the question is, how much do they make? Because why would nature have an animal make more than it needed? We've had millions and millions of years to work this out and animals have to get it right or they die. So how much vitamin C do animals make? And the answer is across the entire animal kingdom, equivalent to a human body weight. That is, if you take the animals, a um, tiny little flea or a giant elephant, if you take these animals and do an adjustment ratio for human body weight to compare, Animals make between 2,000 and 15,000 milligrams of vitamin C per day per human body weight equivalent. Now, this is not a consumption. This is what they manufacture in their own bodies. So if all of nature says you need between 2,000 and 15,000 milligrams and the government says you need 100, <laughs> I think somebody made a mistake. <laughs>
What is so special about vitamin C? Do we know? Oh, sure. Uh, what's special about vitamin C is what's special about vitamins in general. And that is you have to have them or you die. And if you don't have enough, you're sick. And if you take enough, you're healthy. Vitamins, originally, they were called vital amines or vitamins, the way it's pronounced in the UK, or vitamins, the way the Yankees pronounce it. Uh, they were believed to be amines in the beginning because the first vitamin, uh, thiamine, thiamine, was in fact an amine. So this was vitamin B1. Vitamin C was isolated later. And then we have tocopherol, in, which is vitamin E, and calciferol, which is vitamin D, and retinol, vitamin A. And we found out there are all different kinds of things. They weren't just amines, but they're vital. And the definition of a vitamin is it's something your body cannot make that you need for your very existence. There's not that many vitamins, um, around a dozen or so, and a deficiency of any one of these will cause sickness, and a deficiency that's severe or an absence will cause death. In absolutely every case, an absence of any one of those vitamins, any one of them will kill you. So you need all of them all the time, and you don't necessarily get this in your diet. A lot of people eat a lot of junk. They eat a lot of really bad foods, which are vitamin poor. And we now have foods grown on soils, which are nutrient poor. And then we get into genetic modifications and food processing and all the other things people eat that they shouldn't. A lot of salt, a lot of fat, a lot of sugar, too many simple carbohydrates. You put all this together and you have a sick society. So we take this sick society and then we give them drugs, which produces an even greater burden on the body. Now, vitamin C is an antitoxin. It's an antihistamine. It's an antiviral. It's an antidepressant. It's also an antipyretic. It will lower fever. Now, this is just one vitamin, and we haven't even talked about the other one. No, we're coming to those. <laughs> I'm curious uh, about the vitamin B3, because uh, you said in a lecture us on uh, YouTube that uh, vitamin B3 can be good uh, against cholesterol. Yes, and vitamin B3, niacin, is the specific form, whereas vitamin B3 as niacinamide will not have an effect on blood lipids. So that's an important distinction. Niacinamide can be used for mental and emotional illnesses, uh, for schizophrenia, for anxiety disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, bipolar disorder, attention deficit disorder. Uh, these things can all be treated with niacinamide. The advantage of niacinamide is that it does not cause a flush. It's still vitamin B3. But in order to have effect on the blood lipids to lower LDL and raise HDL and lower triglycerides, you have to have niacin. Now, niacin and niacinamide, same vitamin, but they have this difference. The other difference is that niacin causes a flush. When you take niacin in any quantity, almost everyone will have their skin turn pink and they'll feel warm 
like they've been out in the sun too long or like they're or like they're yeah they're very embarrassed it's like a hot flash and the niacin flush annoys a lot of people so they don't want to use niacin they use niacinamide which is fine except for blood levels lipids so in order to lower the ldl and raise the hdl and lower the triglycerides, you have to use niacin, and that means you have to tolerate the flush. Now, Dr. Abram Hoffer, the Canadian physician who was my mentor, did not like the flush either. And he also knew that because of the benefits, you want to take the niacin because it's safer than any drug, and I mean any drug. There's no drug in the world that is as safe as niacin. Over here in the States, a lot of people are on statin medications to lower cholesterol. These drugs are not safe, in my opinion. Niacin is safer. Not only that, niacin is cheaper. And not only that, niacin works better. And the president of the American uh, Cardiology Association over here uh, was quoted in the New York Times some years ago saying that uh, niacin is really it. Nothing else comes close. So niacin is still the best way to lower cholesterol, but there's no money in it. The pharmaceutical companies are not making much money on niacin that anyone can buy over the counter. But that flushes a problem. So a lot of people go and get prescription forms of niacin that are slow release or sustained release. It's a nice idea, but the sustained release preparations have the highest amount of side effects. Uh, flush niacin, the biggest side effect is that flush. So Dr. Hoffer said, just take the niacin, divide up the dose, take the niacin, and the flush will go away in a couple weeks if you continue to take the niacin. Now, what that flush is, is your body's flushing out histamine. And you can take the edge of that by taking an antihistamine, such as vitamin C. And... Uh, some people oh, find that works very well. Others just can't abide it. And they're going to want to go to the third form of niacin, which is inositol hexaniacinate. Inositol hexaniacinate will work on blood lipids. Niacinamide will not. But inositol hexaniacinate is effective on cholesterol. But it is not as effective as pure niacin. It's also not quite as cheap. But inositol hexaniacinate does not cause a flush. We talk about these different forms of niacin uh, in our book, uh, Niacin, the Real Story. And this was, this was Dr. Hoffer's final book, and I was very honored to be his co-author. Niacin, the Real Story is for your listeners who really want to get into this. And while we're at it, we have a companion book on vitamin C called Vitamin C, the Real Story written by Dr. Steve Hickey of the UK and myself. So these are books that will help people to learn all the ins and outs that we can't really cover in complete detail today. What are the benefits about getting this flush? Niacin flush. Well, I like it myself because I like feeling warm. Uh, I mean, you live in Norway. I bet you like being warm too <laughs> <laughs> for sure <laughs> so, so if you want to feel warm that's kind of nice of course um after the flush wears off you might actually feel a little bit chilly because the the flush throws the heat to the surface the niacin flush in and of itself is not really what we're going for it's sort of a marker 
Uh, I don't want everyone to be uncomfortable. I want them to take enough to, to feel good. But if somebody is on a medication for psychosis, they would be much better off taking niacin. It's far safer. If you have a child that's on Adderall or Ritalin or some other drug that they give kids now, and I'm, I'm telling you there are millions of American children who are on these anti-hyperactivity drugs. There are millions of little kids on these. And I used to teach school. I taught every grade there is. I taught little kids and high school age and college and doctoral and postdoc. And I've seen it at all ages. So you have a lot of people on medication. This is something that you can do a substitution for. And niacin will substitute for these drugs that so many people are taking for mental and emotional problems. So the flush itself is not really what we're going for. Uh, we're going for the other benefits. The flush is just uh, a marker. I remember I have gotten this niacin flush a couple of times. And uh, I remember that I'm uh, feeling more clear-headed. That, uh, yes. It's like a, like a helmet is taken off the head and you're extremely clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is back in the 1940s, a medical doctor named William Kaufman was using niacinamide, the other form of niacin, uh, to cure osteoarthritis and also rheumatoid arthritis. And Dr. Kaufman had a tremendous success with this. In fact, uh, people would send a letter to Dr. William Kaufman, Connecticut, USA, and he'd get the mail. Now, Connecticut's an entire state. So that's like saying uh, you're sending a letter to uh, the prime minister Toronto. <laughs> you, you have someone who's well known. So the um, upshot of this was that Dr. Kaufman's patients were reporting just what you reported. They were taking the niacin to help their arthritis, but as a side benefit, they noticed they felt more clear. They were more relaxed. They were more efficient. They didn't feel a hurry, hurry, and they were getting more done and they were more relaxed. And Dr. Kaufman actually went back to animal studies and showed that this is called decreased running. If you take animals, laboratory rats or laboratory mice, for example, and you give them a diet that's deficient in niacin and probably in other B vitamins, but definitely niacin, deficiency of, of niacin will cause these animals to run around more. They're more frantic. They're hyperactive. They're agitated. They're psychotic. If you give them niacin, they have decreased running, which means they calm down. And that, as you can see, is a common thread. How does niacin work for psychosis, for anxiety, uh, for obsessive compulsive disorder, for bipolar, for ADHD? It works very well. These people need more. Whereas you, assuming that you are sane, you probably... <laughs> you probably had the benefit at a much lower dose. And once again, I say to everyone listening, this is not a contest to see how much niacin you can hold. You take enough to get the job done, and most people don't need much. But if you know someone who is currently on a medication for cholesterol or for mental-emotional illness, niacin is safer. I want to mention, too, that I have no financial connection with the health products industry. 
I have no financial connection with supplement manufacturers or vitamin salespeople or any such thing. I don't have my own brand. I do not sell vitamins. I don't make a dime from the sale of nutrients. This is an important point because there are a lot of people who cannot make that statement. But if I were to sell what I recommend, I think it would reduce my credibility. So I'm offering to you what I would want myself. When I listen to someone, I want to hear information and be encouraged to decide for myself and not just sold the solution here, let's have your credit card number. I'm not going to do that. As an author, of course, I want you to read my books, but you can go to my website, doctoryourself.com, which has been up now for nearly 19 years, and you can read hundreds of articles there free of charge. My website is peer-reviewed by physicians, including the late Dr. Abram Hoffer, and people can go there and learn a lot about niacin and vitamin C and the other vitamins. Uh, DoctorYourself.com is non-commercial. I don't even sell my own books there. Can you say a little bit about the, the dosage that we can use for a B3 against cholesterol? It will vary, but generally speaking, it's grams, not milligrams. The USRDA for niacin is under 20 milligrams. And it's substantially under 20 milligrams. The amount of niacin needed to lower LDL and raise HDL and lower triglycerides is probably going to be between 2,000 and 6,000 milligrams a day. But this will vary with the person's situation, their tolerance, their weight, uh, and what you're trying to do. People are all different. We really don't know until we try it. I did. I found out when I had my blood tested many years ago that my cholesterol was high. And I thought, oh, <laughs> I thought I was doing such a good job, but I guess <laughs> I wasn't. So I started taking niacin. And I started taking quite a lot of niacin, exactly the way Dr. Hoffer and Dr. William B. Parsons, Jr. of the Mayo Clinic, uh, America's niacin expert. Dr. Hoffer was Canada's niacin expert. Uh, I took large amounts just the way Dr. Parsons and Dr. Hoffer suggested. And my LDL, which was quite high, just plummeted. It came way down. And now my HDL raises eyebrows. When people look at my blood tests or the doctor sees them, they can't believe my HDL is that good. And, of course, HDL is the so-called good cholesterol, and it's a marker for good cardiovascular health. So here's my own personal experience. You magnify that by the experience of millions, and we realize that niacin uh, has to be taken in a large enough dose. It's the flush that slows people down. The other thing that takes them away from niacin are overblown fears that niacin is going to cause liver problems. Now, for this, we need to go to the expert, and the expert here was the one that Dr. Hoffer himself went to was Dr. William B. Parsons mentioned earlier. Parsons wrote a book called Cholesterol Control Without Diet. It's all about niacin. Parsons said that when you take a lot of niacin, you're likely to have an elevation in your liver enzymes. These used to be called liver function tests, but now they're more properly called liver enzyme tests. So you have a rise in liver enzymes when you take a lot of niacin. 
Parsons said that if you have a modest increase, it is not important. He said it is not clinically significant. It is not a sign of liver pathology. It is a sign of liver activity. The same is true with the PSA test. Men used to get PSA tests uh, to see if they were at risk for prostate cancer. And it turns out that what was known in the beginning turned out to be what we now are saying is true, that the PSA does not indicate prostate cancer. It indicates prostate activity. So the same thing here with the liver enzyme test. When you take niacin, you can expect your liver enzymes to go up. If they go up a modest amount, say 10% over normal, that is not a problem, says Dr. Parsons. And I'd like to reiterate that he was at the Mayo Clinic, and this man knew what he was talking about. Still, if you are on niacin therapy, it's a good idea to work with your doctor, and it's a good idea to have regular tests to make sure those enzymes are in line. I know a number of people who take niacin, and one person who only weighs 100 pounds and change is taking in the neighborhood of 8,000 milligrams of niacin a day. And this individual has a slight elevation in liver enzymes, but it is only slight, and they're getting great benefit from the niacin. Do not go off half-baked on this and start pouring down the niacin. Most people will be very happy with a few hundred milligrams of niacin a day. And that's still 10 to 20 times more than the USRDA. So the sicker you are, the more you need. It's true with niacin. It's true with vitamin C. Uh, what about, what about uh, vitamin B1 for uh, autoimmune diseases? Uh, thiamine, vitamin B1, has been spectacularly uh, important in treating multiple sclerosis. Dr. Frederick Robert Conner of Reedsville, North Carolina, a physician who published a lot back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, had very good success using extremely high doses of thiamine along with the other B vitamins and admittedly a lot of other vitamins as well to halt or even reverse multiple sclerosis. Now, for those who have their ears pricking up when they hear this, I have at DrYourself.com Dr. Quenner's complete detailed article and protocol for a free download. So it's Quenner with a K, K-L-E-N-N-E-R. The Quenner protocol for multiple sclerosis is very, very lengthy, and there's a lot in it. It originally appeared in two parts in the Townsend Letter for Doctors. They gave me kind permission to repost it. So you can download the Quenner Protocol and see what I mean. Quenner's rationale was that a deficiency of thiamine causes the insulating wrapping along your nerve cells to degenerate. Well, that's very similar to multiple sclerosis. You have many nerves in your body, many, many, many nerves, and often they're bundled together, like in your spinal cord, you have a huge number of nerves all touching each other, all compressed into that one central space. Well, each nerve sends a message. So each nerve has to be insulated from the other nerves or you get a short circuit. In the same way that if you have a cable of wires coming into your home or to your building, each one of those wires has insulation on it, rubber or plastic or vinyl insulation. If you take that insulation off, 
those wires will touch each other and all kinds of weird electrical things will happen and things will turn on and turn off and short out and smoke and spark. And this is very similar to what happens in the human body. So thiamine deficiency causes the myelin sheath on the nerves to break down. Quanter figured, well, if that's the case, let's give him a whole lot of thiamine and see if we can rebuild it. And he did. Wow. And it, is, and it isn't just thiamine. It's also good, healthy fats. It's also vitamin D. Vitamin D deficiency is related to multiple sclerosis. There's a lot more multiple sclerosis in northern climates, such as where I am in Rochester, New York, such as where you are in Norway. There's much more multiple sclerosis in northern climates than there is in equatorial countries. Hello, we need more vitamin D. We need all the B vitamins, not just thiamine, not just niacin. In fact, uh, we need a better diet in general. Multiple sclerosis is a very strange disease because, first of all, they don't have a cure. If they did, you would have heard about it. Secondly, the treatments that are used are unbelievably expensive, and they don't work very well. Now, I know people, I've had friends with multiple sclerosis, and I know one woman uh, who had it in her early 20s, and she went from healthy, happy to lying in bed and able to move only her neck in about four years. Ooh, that's aggressive. It's terrible. And I know another person, on the other hand, who was also relatively young. She was in her 30s, late 30s, I guess, relatively young. The older I get, the younger that seems. <laughs> That's so true. And uh, she, she did something different. She was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and she started taking just a huge amount of vitamins. She just didn't even know what to do. She just figured, uh-oh, and she started taking everything. So she just took lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of vitamins. And as time went on, she kind of calmed down, and that amount of vitamins was moderated. But she now has, is still able to walk and talk, uh, went out to um, dinner with her and her husband just a, a matter of a few weeks ago, and she is just about as healthy as she was 20 years ago. Wow. So the difference here could be placebo effect. The difference here could be simply that she's a totally different person or they misdiagnosed her, but she has had careful medical care, and I think that uh, there's no reasons to doubt the diagnosis. The fact is, in her case, the MS is arrested. It's just not getting worse, or at least it's not getting worse um, year by year. And I would say this is a very strong argument for using vitamins. Remember, people will tell you right away, well, we'd use those vitamins, but it isn't safe. It's not safe to take all those vitamins. Well, in the United States, we have a coast-to-coast -coast national reporting system for who dies from what. And uh, every year in um, clinical toxicology, a peer-reviewed journal, there is a summary of who died from what compiled by the American Association of Poison Control Centers. This is about 57 or 58 poison control centers all through the U.S., and that's a lot of real estate. And they all send in their data to this central database where it's crunched and published. 
Now, they've been doing this uh, for, let's see, about 30 years now. And in that time, there have been a total of 13 alleged deaths from vitamins in the United States of America. So that's less than one half a death per year. Whereas we know that pharmaceuticals properly prescribed and taken as direction, as directed, are killing approximately 100,000 Americans every year. And this is a modest estimate. This is not the high estimate. This is actually a middle estimate. So even when you use drugs properly, even when they're properly prescribed and there's no error, just normal expected side effects of drugs are killing a million Americans every 10 years. Now, that's an, it's a lot of dead people. <laughs> it is. And it isn't just in America. This, you have to now multiply this by all of Europe and all of Asia and, and all of Africa and all of South America. Now, with vitamins... One of my team didn't even buy that idea that there were 13 deaths from vitamins. So we figured, all right, let's look into that. And we did. We could not find substantiation of one single death from a vitamin. That's impressive. So no one dies from vitamins and hasn't in the last 30 some years, uh, at least. So the, the, the safety here is colossal. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, do you have any thoughts about the vitamin B6? Sure do. <laughs> of all the B vitamins, that's the one that you actually do have to pay attention to in megadoses, uh, not because of a flush, but because of the chance of some transient neurological symptoms if you take really, really high amounts of B6 without the other supporting B-complex vitamins. The work of Dr. Um, John Ellis, uh, back in the 60s and 70s, showed that high doses of vitamin B6 was effective for, against carpal tunnel syndrome. And uh, it's also been used for PMS symptoms. Some people started taking really huge amounts of vitamin B6, as much as 2,000 milligrams of B6 a day. Now, the Normal government recommendation for B6 is about two milligrams. So they were taking 1,000 times the standard government-sponsored recommendation. And some of these people developed some neurological symptoms, all of which went away as soon as they stopped taking all that B6. A few people noticed these symptoms at levels as low as 500 to 1,000 milligrams a day, and there was one report down around 200 or 300 milligrams a day, which I think is probably unreliable. But even 200 milligrams a day is still 100 times the RDA. And in my 41 years experience, I haven't seen a person yet who had a problem with 200 milligrams of pyridoxine, vitamin B6, a day. If you divide the dose and take it with the other B vitamins, I think you can take a higher dose very safely. So vitamin B6 uh, has its uses as well. You'd be surprised how many, well, maybe you wouldn't be surprised, how many people suffer from repetitive motion injury. Uh, people that work at keyboards, and that's like everybody, 
uh, are at risk for this. And uh, carpal tunnel syndrome is normally something that's treated by surgery. And surgery, of course, has its risks and its um, expense. So if we can use vitamin B6, well, at least we should try it. We try vitamin B6. If that doesn't work, we can always fall back on surgery. Mm. What's your thoughts about the vitamin E? Well, vitamin E is a wonderful vitamin. Uh, it was discovered in 1922, the same year the Soviet Union was formed. That's how you can remember it. Uh, vitamin E came to prominence because of the work of two Canadian physicians, Wilfred Shute and his brother Evan Shute. They were interested in vitamin E because they wanted to stop women from having miscarriages. If you check the literature, the medical literature, you'll find out that in the 1930s and 40s, and even before that, there was a lot of interest in agriculture and how to help cows carry their calf to full term. Now, having been a former dairyman myself, I'm here to tell you that if the calf dies, or if the mother dies, or if the calf is born early, or sick, or dead, the farmer's in trouble, because you need the calf to replenish your herd and grow your herd, and you also have to have a cow give birth in order to have any milk produced. So the whole idea of healthy calves delivered normally, safely, and on time is very important to this entire dairy industry. What was found was that animals that were given wheat germ oil would stop aborting. They could end miscarriage or spontaneous abortion by giving them wheat germ or wheat germ oil. Well, then it was looked into and they found out that vitamin E was in there. And vitamin E was used by doctors Wilford and Evan Shute in their practice because they were both obstetricians. So they have patients that had a history of miscarriage. They gave them vitamin E oil and they had full-term pregnancy. Then the doctors found that people were getting better from a lot of other things. And they found it was useful for cardiovascular disease. An example of this, based on the Schutz work, using very high doses of vitamin E, was my own father. My father had angina. He did not like the medication. It had side effects that were troublesome. It wasn't working very well. And he didn't want to take the silly drug for the rest of his life. So he said to me, Andrew, you got any vitamin that'll help this? <laughs> and I said, well, as a matter of fact, um, <laughs> doctors Wilfred and Evan Shute, who moved into the practice of cardiology and treated over 30,000 patients with vitamin E near Toronto, Canada, uh, used about... 1,200 to 3,200 units of vitamin E a day to treat angina. And he said, well, how much do I have to take? And I said, well, I don't know, but you can just gradually go up and see how much it takes to get the job done. So he started taking vitamin E and didn't really notice anything at 400 units, went to 600, 800, 1,000. Maybe it was helping. He wasn't sure. Uh, he finally got up to 1,600 units of vitamin E a day, and his angina symptoms were gone and never occurred again through the rest of his vitamin E-taking life. 
Now, this was very significant because I got to see this myself, and it was my own father. But the most interesting thing that I can tell you in addition to that is that his varicose veins went away. Vitamin E is so good for the circulation that not only does it improve oxygen efficiency, not only does it strengthen and regulate heartbeat, not only does it open up collateral circulation, not only does it support all kinds of healthy vascular life, but it also helps to repair varicose veins. Now, my father had varicose veins that you could see a long ways away. And he, he insisted on wearing shorts in the summertime. So this was embarrassing. <laughs> His varicose veins were, were quite noticeable. They weren't the worst ones I've ever seen, but he was dark purple like spider webs all over his lower legs. And some of them were really pretty blotchy and pretty large. It took years, but over a period of about five or six years, I noticed that Every time I saw him wearing his perpetual favorite shorts, that his legs just kept looking clearer and clearer. And over a period of uh, around five or six years, they practically went away. Now, I've again duplicated this on my own self because I had mild varicose veins, nothing like he had. But I looked down and I saw them and I thought, oh, man, I don't want what my dad had. I'm going to get on this now. So I started taking about 800 units of vitamin E a day, and uh, they're just not there anymore. Wow. And every, every day I look down, and they're not there. <laughs> so what is your uh, vitamin regimen there, uh, Andrew, a day? Well, it'll, it'll um, vary from person to person. Remember, what I do is not necessarily what you should do, but obviously I take a lot of vitamin C. Linus Pauling took 18,000 milligrams of C a day, so that's what I take. And uh, I divide that dose up. I take more when I'm sick. I already mentioned I take about 800 units of vitamin E. I take a good multivitamin breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That has the B vitamins in it and most of the others. I take extra vitamin D. For me, extra vitamin D that's right for me is around 4,000 units a day. Hmm. Funny thing about that, I've been taking vitamin D for 30 years. Eh, no, more than that. I've been taking vitamin D for almost my entire life. When I was a boy, my mother gave us a multivitamin every day, and there was some vitamin D in that, and I had vitamin D milk because vitamin D is added to milk in the States. And then... I started taking extra vitamin D on top of that when I was, um, well, right about the time I became father because I had to stay healthy too. I was taking probably from all sources 1,500 units or more of vitamin D every day. And I've been doing this for a good solid 25 years when I finally got tested because I thought I might be taking too much. Just wanted to be sure. A vitamin D test is easy to do. When they draw your blood, just have them do a vitamin D test. And uh, it came back with a note from the doctor appended to it that said, uh, your vitamin D level is low. You should consider a supplement. Well, I'd already been doing that. I was already taking three times, closer to four times, the recommended amount. 
So I immediately increased my vitamin D again up to around 3,000 units a day. And then got tested again a couple years later, and my vitamin D level was still low. Well, Rochester's a cloudy area. We're in one of the cloudiest parts of the United States. There's Seattle, Buffalo, Rochester, and the inside of a closet. Uh, <laughs> so we had a situation where I, the megavitamin guy, was already megavitamining on vitamin D, and I wasn't getting enough. So I increased it to about four to 5,000, and that seems to work for me. Now, you might not need that much, but I would say every adult needs at least 1,500 units of vitamin D by supplement every day. And if you live in northern climates or during the winter in general, I would recommend closer to 5,000. Somewhere between 1,500 and 5,000 would be about right. Keep in mind that if you were on a beach in the Bahamas and you went out with just a T-shirt and shorts, in less than half an hour, you would get 10,000 or even 15,000 units of vitamin D or more in half an hour just with partial skin exposure. Uh, have you heard about Michael Hollick? I've interviewed him. Great guy. Yeah, I had him on the show earlier. Uh, uh, and he talked about uh, the vitamins, and I think that it was 3,300 or something he recommended uh, a day. I'm glad to hear that. You know, uh, he was actually fired as a dermatologist at the hospital in Boston and kicked out of the American uh, Dermatology Association because he was recommending too much sun exposure. <laughs> and, I, and I said to him, well, how much is that? And he was very candid about it. He said, well, I recommended that people go outside without sunblock for 15 minutes, three times a week. And that was considered bad advice. That was considered dangerous exposure. That's how far this idiocy has come. I don't have any words for it. So as a, as a last question here, Andrew, are there any other vitamins I haven't asked about, uh, asked about uh, that you think are important? Well, of course, they're all important. Uh, vitamin A is easiest to get by having a lot of plants in your diet. You consume beta carotene in any orange vegetable, but also in any green vegetable. The beta carotene is orange, but you can't see it because the green covers it. You know how you look at the leaves in the autumn and all of a sudden there are all these different colors? Those leaves have always been that color, but the green chlorophyll blocked it. Okay. So when you have green vegetables, you're getting beta carotene. When you have orange vegetables, you are. So people should have sweet potatoes and yams, pumpkin and squash. They should have carrots. They should have kale. They should have broccoli, cabbage, all the things we know we should eat. That's what we need to eat. And then you get your vitamin A in the safest form that you cannot overdose on, which is beta carotene. Pay no attention <clears throat> to people who tell you that carotene can be harmful. There was a study done in Finland where they gave a very small amount of beta carotene to people that had smoked a lot or kept smoking cigarettes. Ladies and gentlemen, beta carotene is not harmful to smokers. Smoking is harmful to smokers. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Andrew. 
it was uh, it was a real pleasure and uh, it was uh, very insightful and informative in these flu and cold days. Well, so. if you could mention folks can watch that vitamin movie online, they will actually see me take 16,000 milligrams of vitamin C at one time. Okay, where can we find this vitamin movie? At thatvitaminmovie.com. Okay, listeners, check out that movie. I, I for sure going to check it out. And the other thing I like to tell people is the little secret behind the scene. That was take two. That was take two? Okay. Yeah, there was a problem in the first take, so I had to do it again. So I took 32,000 milligrams of vitamin C at one time. Now, don't do this at home. The reason I needed so much is because the stress of schedules and filming and location shooting was kind of wearing on me. And the last thing I want to do is be sick in my own movie, right? <laughs> so I needed more vitamin C. But remember, you take enough C to be symptom-free, whatever the amount might be. You don't take the amount of vitamins that you think you should take or that somebody else tells you. You look into this for yourself and you try and see what works for you. And that's what I did when they put my son in my arms when I was 22. And for the last 41 years, I have the same message. Look into this for yourself, because if you don't, you don't know what you're missing. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Adrian. Have a pleasant weekend. Thank you very much.